Welcome to The Comb Over, a podcast from The Combination, a show about politics made in Northern Ireland, but not necessarily about Northern Ireland. My name's Morris McCartney, and I'll be getting together with activists and scholars and combing over issues of sustainability, equality, grassroots democracy, and whatever else comes up in conversation. In this episode, we're looking at the climate crisis, the rule of law, and human rights. On the 20th of December 2019, the Dutch Supreme Court, the highest court in the Netherlands, made what may turn out to be a momentous decision. It upheld previous decisions in a case brought by an environmental organisation called Urgenda, thereby finding that the Dutch government has obligations to urgently and significantly reduce emissions in line with its human rights obligations. Does this truly historical outcome, as Urgenda describes it, provide us with a model for how to address the unfolding climate crisis? How does such an approach fit in with other forms of campaigning on sustainability? Should environmental movements campaign on a human rights basis, and should we see the courts as a key route in pursuing climate justice? I've come to Enniskillen to talk these matters over with my combination colleague, Tanya Jones. Tanya, maybe I could begin by asking you to tell me a little bit about your history of activism in this area, and I mean that both geographically and in terms of subject matter. Yes, mm-hmm. thank you. Yes, um, well, probably going back to my kind of pre-activism days. First of all, uh, a very long time ago, I was a solicitor doing um, litigation in rural Yorkshire. Um, and actually wrote um, uh, three comic novels uh, based on that experience. Um, After that, we travelled for some time in um, Italy and Ireland and um, ended up um, in Enniskillen. Uh, I became involved in um, various kinds of activism there, um, largely to do with climate change awareness um, and the Green Party. Uh, But the uh, major thing that I did was I was um, one of the founder members of the uh, Fermanagh Fracking Awareness Network when the threat of fracking um, came to Fermanagh, um, a licence was um, was issued for um, fracking in the county and uh, we formed a group to raise awareness of what that meant and to oppose it. What's, when, when was this? What sort of year are we...? That was uh, 2011. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the licence was granted. Uh, we found out about it in the autumn of that year and that's um, when the group was formed. That's a good good nine years of history of activism already, just to... Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, my my experience doing that, I was the uh, legal coordinator and the website editor there, uh, led to me uh, getting more involved in activism, more involved in green politics and um, standing uh, in four elections uh, to Westminster and to Assembly uh, in the uh, Fermanagh and South Tyrone. Uh, constituency. Very good. It's a, a, a tricky field to apply, I think, for, for greens of the sustainable sustainable variety of greens. You know, obviously there are other shades of green in, in Northern Irish politics. Which Yes, know, it so. is. I mean, um, electorally, it's, it's very difficult um, in view of the, you know, the particular circumstances here. In the uh, 2010 general election, there was um, a majority of I think four reduced to um, reduced to one or two um, at a subsequent court case. So uh, people are never going to feel that um, 
they 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 have a vote which they can always expend as they would like to uh, but I did find it hugely rewarding I think one particular thing was that having a green presence there very much changed the conversation and it um, brought different issues different perspectives um, to the table it, it was very noticeable in in hustings uh, particularly that it did change the attitudes of um, other candidates as well as um, uh, speaking to the concerns um, of the audience. So then in terms of the um, anti-fracking campaign that got going in, in 2011, um, how did that, how did you find, was it, did people rally around? Was it... um, initially it was it was quite difficult um, because the, the media story that was being put out um, by the company uh, was that this was a great economic boost um, for for County Fermanagh, which um, you know doesn't have a lot by way of um, uh, investment, uh, jobs, and so on. Um, so you know there were headlines saying you know 600, 700 jobs to come to Fermanagh, and um, obviously you know anybody um, speaking against that um, uh, looked as though they were. Uh, best a Luddite, at worst um, somebody who wanted to, uh, you know, hold back the um, economic health of the county. Uh, but as um, we came to look into the really the economics of it more, um, and as um, you know, those who had been putting forward this story um, were were forced to um, clarify and uh, to confirm that, in fact, um, there weren't going to be significant numbers of jobs uh, for local people, uh, and those jobs that would be available to local people uh, would be low-skilled, low-paid, and short-term. Um, and equally important, probably more important, uh, was the realisation of the potential impact of fracking on the um, actual um, healthy economic sectors of uh, Fermanagh, uh, particularly uh, tourism, uh, food production and farming. Mm. And so uh, when people came to realise that, um, there was there was really a massive um, shift in public opinion and uh, that was followed um, to, to a great extent uh, by a shift in opinion uh, by the, the other political parties. Mm. So that... That economic case then, did that form the basis of or part of your legal challenge or did you make a legal challenge in that stage or... Um, there wasn't really, uh, there wasn't really a legal challenge which was um, led by us. Um, it, the actual uh, proposal eventually fell um, because the company uh, weren't able to complete the work um, mandated by the licence in time and the reason for that um, was a, a planning issue so um, there weren't actually uh, legal proceedings um, okay. necessary we had to be prepared um, to uh, take a judicial review if necessary but um, in, in, in fact uh, that wasn't the way in which um, uh, it came to an end So it was more about street campaigning and, and Yes, it was very much about, about um, changing the changing the conversation, um, clarifying um, the real impacts that fracking would have. Um, as I've said, uh, the economic arguments were very important in that and uh, equally important were health issues. Um, 
environmental issues uh, were also significant, but um, to a great extent insofar as they potentially impacted on human health. Uh, I initially came into the campaign um, from the point of view of climate change. Uh, my, my initial concern was, was primarily about you know, this being an expansion of um, unsustainable uh, fossil fuel extraction and use. Uh, but in practice, it was the, um, the local immediate uh, human impacts, um, which were the significant ones in terms of uh, public opinion. I wonder if that is um, uh, that kind of mixture of the local and the, the well, global, for want of a better word, is that perhaps the is that combination? There's an appropriate word. I always like to find ways to use the, the title of our website to, to throw in here, you know, but that kind of combination of the local and the global. Yes, very much so. And, you know, that's that's obviously um, significant in terms of a lot of um, environmental problems uh, and impacts, you know, um, things like air pollution um, as well. Um, one difficulty um, is where there isn't that kind of um, synergy, you know, um, uh, in climate justice, we're quite often talking about um, impacts which aren't local um, and aren't, you know, um, easily identifiable. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the, um, the long-term distant effects um, of climate change, and that, you know, isn't so easy um, is isn't so easy mm. to uh, to embed. I guess the, this is the, the sort of because I, I guess I'm watching uh, Extinction Rebellion events on TV or whatever, and and it does seem to be about that kind of more global dimension. It's not about you know here is somebody trying to crack the rocks in Fermanagh. It's about you know we're facing a looming climate unfolding climate crisis. It's not even looming. It's it's already here. Um, and it, to, to a large extent, that does, it does seem to have brought a lot of people out onto the streets. It's, it's been successful in rallying people around. But maybe there is also a, an argument to say, yes, do that, but also tie in with the, the very local kind of considerations. Or Yeah, I, I think people are, are making their own um, connections uh, with, with uh, local issues and, and local groups and so on. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously there have been um, environmental groups um, for a long time uh, dealing largely with local issues. Um, I think Extinction Rebellion is principally about um, something a bit different and um, I think it's I think it's important that it retains that um, that global focus. You not only you were you campaigning here but you you're also involved with Extinction Rebellion. Could you want to tell us a bit about that? Yes, um, I'm actually I'm, I'm back here at the moment for my holidays, but I'm actually now uh, based in Dundee, um, where I'm uh, just beginning a PhD in climate justice, and I've been involved in um, Extinction Rebellion in Scotland. I think I've been particularly impressed. Um, it's in Scotland that I've been involved with Extinction Rebellion, so um, I, I can't really speak um, uh, for what happens elsewhere. But in Scotland, there's certainly um, a, a very intense concern about justice. You know, um, so it isn't just climate action um, that they're calling for; it is climate justice, and there's a real um, sensitivity about um, how 
Extinction Rebellion speaks and um, what kind of actions um, they're asking people to get involved with and an awareness that um, in order to be involved in um, uh, potentially law-breaking activities, um, you need a certain amount of privilege and that that privilege isn't um, available to everyone. And I guess the we've sort of seen, I think, um, a couple of instances where maybe they got it a little bit wrong, not in Scotland necessarily, but in, certainly I think in London that, that there was a couple of people decided to jump on top of a commuter train in one of the less well-off parts of London with, where ordinary people got very angry. So it's those sorts of issues that you've got to, even if you're not going to ask people to come and get involved in the campaign, you, you, you need to pick your targets a bit more Yes, carefully. I think, um, you know, I think it's, it's very important that um, Extinction Rebellion being, you know, quite a, a, a loose sort of movement um, rather than an organisation, um, it has the flexibility to be um, reflective, um, um, to be self-critical and to be sort of evolving. And um, I think really, you know, that's that's one of its great strengths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's... There, we. That that incident aside, um, I think um, the actions have been remarkably well received by people. They haven't sort of brought an angry backlash. A lot of people have been very sympathetic, and I suppose um, uh, you could tie that in also with the school strikes. Which you know, there's been a few people, a few of the usual suspects who complain, "Oh, these children should be in school." they would have a different story, the children, if you ask themselves. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, that has, uh, seems to have elicited a lot of sympathy and and, uh, admiration, indeed. You know, in fact, you know, in the last um, episode, when I was talking to Stephen, we we did mention Sharon, of course, uh, as she was briefly known, um, uh, Greta Thunberg, um, and uh, many of the other young people who have, she gets a lot of headlines, of course, there's plenty more, of young activists who have done an amazing job across the world, and um, you know, as I say, that they, they've they've brought out a lot of public support. As has Extinction Rebellion. Um, I wonder, I suppose, to those organisations or those sort of activities, it's about kind of street protests, it's about disruption, but to sort of tack back towards the kind of legal end. I mean, is there a tension between? That kind of civil disobedience, albeit non-violent, and uh, pursuing legal routes to try to get, you know, climate justice remedies in the court. Yes, I mean, there's always a tension, and there's always a need to, you know, use a very wide, you know, variety of um, of of tactics, of strategies, um, of of mechanisms. Um, Naomi Klein's famous book um, on climate change said this changes everything and um, it it changes everything about activism, about the law, um, about, you know, our relationships um, as well as everything, you know, scientifically, um, politically, if you like. Uh, So I think, you know, we, we have to do everything but we have to be constantly um, looking at how those different um, strategies play into each other um, and where we're going 
the call for a climate emergency, for example, really important, really significant, but it also contains its own dangers. We tend to assume, I think, on the left, if you like, um, that the authoritarian right will always be um, climate deniers, if you like. Uh, but there's, there was a very interesting uh, article in the um, Green European Journal pointing out that this isn't necessarily the case and that the climate issue is beginning to be uh, invoked uh, by, the, by the right um, as a reason for increased um, control, if you like, on, on immigration. There's this fortress mentality, um, which language about emergency can quite easily play into. Mm. And so I think we need to be very, very careful, very aware, um, very precise about what we say mm. and what we do. Um, to go back to the uh, the question about um, nonviolent direct action, um, I always remember um, something that was said by, by one of my great heroes, um, John Deere, the uh, former Jesuit um, anti-nuclear um, campaigner, who said that we have to be meticulously non-violent. That is non-violent not only in not taking action, taking violent action ourselves, but not provoking violence as well. And um, so I think we have to be always questioning what we do, always looking again at the effects of what we do and always making sure that what we do and say um, builds into a narrative of, of justice and of compassion, um, not just of um, uh, fear. Mm, I think you mentioned the, about the, maybe the right uh, seizing on the climate issue to bolster an argument for you know clamping down on migration and all the rest of it which to me flies in the face of the idea of climate justice, as I first came across it through maybe Mary Robinson, people like that. The whole point is that the climate chaos and, and collapse that's, that's unfolding at the minute is affecting, first and foremost, those who had the smallest role, the least role in, in, in creating the problem in the first place. They're bearing the biggest burden, and those will be people out in the you know the, the climate front lines as it were mm -hmm. you know we've seen we talked about it with Stephen uh, pictures from Australia but it's you know it's happening it's happened all across Africa it's happened in you know there's you know in parts of Latin America there are there are people whose farmland has been flooded there are people whose soils have dried up that you know the effects are felt first and foremost by and particularly indigenous peoples um, people living in, in poorer countries, as it were, um, and to me, uh, and they they weren't the countries that, that drove the problem in the first place. So that that idea of climate justice, as um, a kind of a, we, you know, someone once said that um, it's not the the north that that developed the developing countries; it's the other way around. You know, the yes. the north took all the resources <laughs> and and made off with them and, and built their own. This, you know, the European economies were built on the backs of colonialism, slavery, and all the rest of it. And now they, they built their industrial um, capacity on the back of burning fossil fuels, which have the effect of harming people in the South, the global South, the majority world. 
And so it's a bit cheeky to turn around and say, oh, no, no, we can't let any more of you in because, you know, oh, you know, have to look after our scarce resources. What? <laughs> you know, you guys took our resources. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's a, a bit of a, a detour into that very global uh, picture. But obviously we, we have to try to, we need to bear in mind this idea of kind of a, you know, the debt that we owe because of the, the sort of whole history of how our economy developed. But to kind of yeah, bring it back to, <laughs> um, I guess, uh, into the, the Extinction Rebellion and maybe then moving towards uh, thinking about the uh, the rule of law, the courts, the rule of courts. Um, uh, maybe, you know, I, I we both uh, came across a, a case of um, uh, brought by a Dutch organisation called Urgenda, um, which uh, they took it through the courts, the various courts and the, and the Supreme Court in um, Holland has just um, given them the all clear. They they won their case. Do you want to say something about that? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that case and what do you think the implications are for the climate movement? Yes, yes. It, I mean, it's a, a really significant case and uh, very, very important for the future. Um, it was actually, um, as you say, um, it did succeed um, at all levels um, of the of the um, Dutch legal system. Um, there was, in fact, a, a big shift um, between um, the grounds on which um, it won in the in the lowest court and um, those at which it won at the um, appeal court. And the appeal court was the particularly significant judgment because that um, did um, state that the failure of the Dutch government um, to set um, and work towards appropriate targets um, was a direct um, infraction of human rights, um, whereas in the lower court um, it had been on a, on a more narrow um, uh, technical matter of, uh, of Dutch law. Um, so um, it is hugely significant um, that that was the finding and that that's been uh, upheld uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, We have yet to see really um, how much influence that will have um, outside um, the Netherlands. Um, In particular, there was um, an Irish climate case brought, um, which didn't succeed at the first instance. Um, That is now going to appeal, and that is very much uh, following along the same lines um, as agenda. So it will be extremely interesting um, to see what what happens at the Court of Appeal um, there. But these are sort of models that uh, potentially, at any rate, we're not sure about the Irish case just yet, but there could be other people who say, oh, look look what the the Dutch court said. We can use the same legal arguments in relation to other countries that haven't set very good targets or are failing to hit them. Yes. um, I mean, there are limits, however. You know, um, this this isn't a panacea. This isn't something that will um, change everything completely and um, um, remove the need to do everything else. In particular, um, there are limits to how much it addresses the real problem of climate justice um, because its case is brought by, um, on behalf of um, 
Dutch citizens, uh, particularly um, young people, and it's about their human rights. Um, to an extent, um, the particular um, geographical nature of, uh, of the country um, may be relevant. It's very easy to identify um, specific impacts uh, which will affect people within the country in that case. But of course, it doesn't do anything to help uh, people in the global south um, mm. who are, as you've said, uh, the most impacted uh, by climate change. Um, although human rights are universal, um, in general, uh, mechanisms to redress them are only um, within nations. Mm. You know, uh, people don't have, uh, in general, the facility to um, force another country to change its policies um, in order to protect um, the human rights of, of, of someone elsewhere mm -hmm. in the world. Um, so I think um, although these kind of cases are very important in um, as part of uh, pushing our own governments to set and achieve um, the right climate targets. Um, they don't necessarily um, meet the wider mm -hmm. um, climate justice requirements. I suppose in, in one sense the, the Urgenda case is about um, taking the Dutch government to court. Uh, but of course one of the everybody in the sort of climate justice movement realizes that governments are one thing but the big corporations who are making a lot of money out of fossil fuels and so forth are another thing so perhaps the the, the route to go would be to supplement that kind of thing where you take dutch can take their their government to court but could you envisage people in i don't know let's say one of the islands in the south pacific that's about to sink <laughs> you know, about to be submerged, could they perhaps find some legal recourse to say, right, take Exxon or Shell or, or BP or, or a number of these sort of companies to court? Or is that something that, or could we frame their, you know, our campaigning around the human rights of those people are being violated? Why are the polluters not being held liable? Yes. One of the uh, the most interesting and um, imaginative, if you like, um, use of um, human rights has been uh, by the uh, Philippines Human Rights Commission, who have um, launched um, not a legal case, uh, but a, a major inquiry, um, which is known as the uh, Carbon Majors Inquiry, um, looking into the responsibility of... Um, those um, corporations uh, which are the largest emitters of um, greenhouse gas emissions um, examining their responsibility uh, for the impact of climate change on people in the Philippines. Um, that's something that's, um, that's been ongoing uh, for a couple of years now um, and as I say is, is very important and a, a a very good illustration of um, how we can use um, human rights to to make these kind of connections. Um, as I say, it isn't a legal case. Um, there isn't anything that's going to be binding about its findings, um, but 
it's part of changing that conversation. Mm. And then I guess the, the the obvious sort of issue to follow on from that is that these are big economic players. Are you going to be able to persuade governments that to do something that they might perceive to be that's not in their best economic interests and so forth? So I guess that pushes us back towards the kind of economic argument about about these things. And maybe that will be a nod towards the looking at something like the Green New Deal. But again, maybe that's for another podcast. So, Tanya, thank you very much. Thank you.